Welcome to the Critical Futures Podcast. It's critical because the time is now to conjure the world and communities we want to live and thrive in. But it's also futurity, or the intentional imagining and materializing of liberated futures where freedom from oppression, trauma, violence, and discrimination are realized. In this series, we chat with members of the Anti-Racism Consortium in partnership with the Institute for Healing Justice and Equity. These are conversations between organizations and their community partners to highlight how to deeply work with community in a way that shares power and moves us all towards liberation. In today's episode, we chat with Brian Smedley, an equity scholar at Urban, and his community partner, Casey Dudley, a community catalyst at Urban and project director for the Parent as Champions Project at SPAN Advocacy. Our conversation is moderated by me. Dr. Amber Johnson, Professor of Communication and Social Justice at St. Louis University and Executive Director of the Institute for Healing Justice and Equity. So I want to start off just kind of giving a glimpse into what the critical future is about, right? So we know that there is a future we are living in every second as we move into these next moments of our lives. So the critical future just says, can we be really intentional about the work that we're doing so that we can map new futures, right? Start to do things differently. And one of the important things that we have to do differently is our community engagement work and how we deal with systems, right? So how we dismantle systems, what we were building in the, in, in the wake, and how we are moving forward so that we can finally one day stop having these conversations. Will that happen in our lifetime? I'm not sure, but I know that we have to keep creating the conditions to get closer and closer to it, which brings me to you all's work. So please tell me about the work that you do and what brought you to Urban in the first place. First and foremost, I'm, I'm you know, with all of the things that I, I have been a part of and, and done within my career, um, right? I'm a mom first, right? So, um, and I have a son that is 10 years old now, but he was, um, he was born um, premature, right? And, um, some things that we don't realize is that, you know, there's a whole nother life that's happening um, when when children are born, if they are born not in the most healthiest status. Um, and that's really kind of where my journey began. My son was born at two point two pounds, actually one point five after all the water weight and everything. But it was a struggle coming from the NICU to um, him, you know, developing and going into pre-k and getting diagnosed with autism um and you know i just seen so many inequities right from the time my son was born to the time he was diagnosed to the time he got in school and the inequities really lied in just me not understanding and knowing how to maneuver systematically um and it's just really about knowing the rules and understanding that this is another hurdle that us as african americans or minorities have to go over when um, advocating for our children. Um, so, you know, all of that set aside, you know, my kid is, my kid's story is one of few that was able to um, be able to have a positive outcome. But there's so many that I work with and that I found along my journey that did not have that same, did not have that same outcome. And it just kind of brought me here, right? Um, doing work and, and conversing with other partners within the state of New Jersey and around the country, um, it really brought me to doing this work, knowing that this is just not an isolated issue. It's an issue that's happening, um, you know, worldwide. 
Um, but what we can do here, what I can do here as a uh, parent, as a community partner, um, as a stakeholder, um, it just really, really makes a difference um, to be a part of, of these types of initiatives. Can you tell me about being state program director for the New Jersey Parent Information Center? Absolutely. So I live in the state of New Jersey um, and the organization that I'm employed with is called SPAN Advocacy, Statewide Parent Advocacy, and we are the Parent Information Center for the state of New Jersey. Um, we not only are in New Jersey, we are nationally recognized and actually just recently internationally. And what we do is support parents for uh, in underserved um, areas, and, um, you know, those with special health care needs. Right. So, you know, this initiated with actually four women that were parents sitting around the table because of the inequities that their children um, was experiencing throughout the special education school system. And, you know, being a part of this organization has actually taught me. Right. So not only was it a place of employment, but it was a learning lesson. Right. To understand how to maneuver through those gates and avenues and pathways um, to find out where I stand and what my rights were as a parent, understanding what policy meant, how it affects us, how it affects our health care, how it affects our education uh, when working for our, for, for our children. Prior to that, I mean, I was a, you know, marketing director for an advertising agency, right? Um, and really just kind of revamped myself, but that's exactly where it came from. I mean, it started out as just going to get information, which morphed into something completely um, that I wouldn't have recognized 10 years ago of me being in this position. Wonderful, thank you. Brian, please talk to me about your role as Equity Scholar for Urban and how you arrived to this moment. Sure. Well, first, Amber, thank you so much for having us. And I, I think this is, as the, the title of this podcast suggests, this is a critical time for us to re-envision and shape the future in the ways that we need to survive. And so I really resonate with what Casey has said. This is about our families. It's about our communities. It's about ensuring that, our, that we're not left behind in our healthcare systems and trying to uh, ensure that systems meet our needs rather than the other way around. It seems like um, our healthcare systems are kind of perverse in that they're focused on meeting the needs of shareholders, investors, uh, people profiting off of uh, illness um, and prioritizing the needs of those that provide the care rather than centering the needs of people that are supposed to be served in our healthcare system. So for me, you know, issues of health justice have always been core to um, my values and the work that I do. I believe that without health justice, there is no other form of justice. Uh, and so recognizing that health and health care are so essential to all of us, uh, I'm trying to show the connections, uh, how uh, racial inequity, racial inequality, and racism in our healthcare systems hurts everybody, not just people of color, but it, it, is, it leads to uh, and co contributes to our healthcare systems being so inefficient so inequitable and producing poor outcomes for everybody except for those folk who are profiting off the system. Absolutely. Thank you for that, Brian and Casey. I think your, your work speaks volumes to what is necessary, like in the right now and obviously in the very near and far critical future, right? Because you're touching on two huge areas, right? So healthcare and the inequities in the healthcare system, but also education and the way those two things bleed into each other because they are connected. Um, we can't have children in schools learning if they're not healthy and they're not well, right? And we that's that's just a fact. Um, so from your perspective then, 
What are the most critical or pressing issues related to anti-racist health policy and research on structural racism in healthcare systems? That's a great question, Amber. You know, we, we look at today's healthcare system, it's enormously complex. We have a mix of government um, funding for care, private sector uh, funding for care, and yet none of it meets the needs of the American population. And so, you know, as we think about uh, what it is that we are trying to do, uh, we're trying to just to, to center human needs and to, um, uh, to really help the healthcare system to reflect on the fact that it was built on a structure of racist ideology. So our healthcare systems originally uh, emerged just to uh, serve the needs of the wealthy and well-to-do, uh, and those private providers who, pro who were able to provide care were able to profit. But now we've got to re-envision a system where your race, your wealth, your income um, should not determine the quality and accessibility of your health care. And in order to do that, we have to really understand how this system was built around notions of capitalism and racism um, that we have to cleanse from our healthcare systems in order to start to reimagine uh, these systems and to have our healthcare systems actually work in the way that they're supposed to, to help us be a healthy and equitable population. So um, first understanding the racist foundations of the US healthcare system is essential to understanding how to move forward. Yes, I mean, I completely agree, right? So. You know, the question of, you know, what is one of the most pressing issues? And, you know, we you look at other countries. There are some countries that are out there that, right, have, you know, complete covered health care, right? Universal health care. And you wonder, do they have these same situations as we do? Right. And, 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 you know, one may say yes and one may say no. However, you know, we have so many conglomerates of issues when it comes to our healthcare system. And one that I see on a daily basis is the issues between private insurance and Medicaid, right? Um, and we know that you can, and this is, this is not rocket science stuff. You can walk literally in a hospital, in an emergency room, and I can have a broken arm, Brian can have a broken arm, right? But it's possible, more than likely, you know, um, that the outcome is going to be Brian if he has the private health care insurance is probably going to get served before I do. Right. I'm probably going to wait longer. Brian is going to get the better care that I'm going to get. I'm probably going to see be seen when they get to me. He's going to probably get a better referral. Um, he's going to have more access to, um, you know, other care when it comes to coming outside of the hospital, whether it's be an operation, whether it's a referral to um physical therapy, right? Those inequities, and this is, has nothing to do with race. This is just, this could be, you know, this is a matter of, um, you know, the the money that we make, right? This is a matter of the places that we live. And it just basically makes a difference. Unfortunately, that should not be the case, right? We should be able to be able to, able to all see equal healthcare, depending on no matter where we go, not even depending on the type of um, insurance that we have. So first we have to really, really go over that hurt, get over that hurdle. Um, I was a part of um, an initiative here in the state of New Jersey, where we worked on the values of services for children with special healthcare needs, specifically autism, right? So um, there is a dynamic where if you have the diagnosis of autism, then you are able to receive 
what is completely considered somewhat of the gold standard ABA therapy, right? So if there are children that do not have this diagnosis that may need the services and also have Medicaid, they absolutely will not receive these services. However, if you are a child that do have this diagnosis, you will receive the services depending on the type of um, insurance that you have. If you have Medicaid, it more than likely, depending on the state that you live in, may not be approved, right? So what we did here in New Jersey was ensure that these type of services was co were covered. The majority of children that do have this di have the diagnosis of autism are, you know, they're <clears throat> some some of them, a lot of them are in underserved communities, right? They don't have access to private health care. They do have Medicaid, and they're waiting on lines, health insurance lines, to just receive some type of services. Um, to to be served and to get to be able to get these type of therapies. And in New Jersey, we were able to get that covered no matter what type of therapy you need or what type of insurance that you have, right? So there's so many different examples of such that start with our insurance. So that is a definite inequity that we see here um, when it comes to racism. And I would just add to what Casey said, that the way racism plays out is in the lack of political support to fully fund programs like Medicaid, right? Why is it that people of color should be concentrated in the, the, the form of public insurance that few providers take that doesn't reimburse adequately for services? And, um, you know, if Medicaid were um, perceived by the American public as more like Medicare, <laughs> there would be the political support to fully fund Medicaid at the same rate. Yeah, I think you, you both bring up such important points. And I think there's something to really tease out here, and that's the tension between understanding the role that schools play in access to healthcare and what those barriers are. Cause I don't think that we're having enough conversations that really tease out the connection between healthcare, education systems, and how they are both ultimately failing our children. Right. And so especially, you know, you, you I love that you focus on parents and, and equipping parents with the tools to be advocates. Right. So when we think about these, these critical futures, what are some ways that we can, you know, shift, change, radically reimagine how we understand education, healthcare, and anti-racism, um, and just really anti-inequity? Because, um, like you said, it's so much of it comes together. It's about money. It's about race. It's about ability. It's and it's about really our articulation. How many parents can even articulate in order to be able to advocate? exactly what their child needs, uh, especially without these diagnoses, which are also more barriers. Um, so what do you hope to change, shift, or radically reimagine with your work moving forward? Oh, wow, Amber. I mean, you know, we, we that's such a loaded question, and there's so many different ways that we can start, right? Um, and so the program that I oversee is a program called Parents as Champions for Healthy Schools, which is funded by the New Jersey Department of Health. Uh, which is ultimately funded by the maternal child um, um, block grant. And, you know, it supports parent advocacy. However, um, it supports healthy school outcomes. And what that means, whether your child is, you know, has health care issues, um, medically fragile, or if you have a generally healthy child, you still have to have a healthy school environment. The program is based off of a, um, a model that some people may be familiar with, which is the WISC model, um, whole school, whole child, whole community, right? So again, we're starting at the basis, the foundation. 
You got to take care of the whole, the whole child, the whole school. And then there's a community part that implements in that as well. Um, and basically what we do is we take parents and, and, and administrators, um, and community members. And we put them in a four week training um, to where they understand why the foundation of a healthy school is necessary in your community. Right. Um, and it understands the and, and we teach them how to understand the laws and policies that surround around education. Right. You know, just for once, um, just as an example, anything that impedes on a child's education has to be addressed. Right. Right. So so if it impedes on the child getting access to their education, the school district is obligated to address that need. Right especially with children that have special health care needs. Um, and so what are we doing? Are we addressing those needs? If my kid is coming to school um, and he's sick every day and they cannot attend or attain at, in the classroom, are we addressing the reason why? Maybe if the child has asthma, do they have a cough? Are we making those referrals? So we teach parents how to understand, to look out for those things and why it's necessary to, under again, have a healthy school environment, right? Are we walking down the school halls? Do we see molds in the cracks, right, of the floors? Again, another health inequity. We always see these issues that are happening in the underserved communities, right? So what are we doing to address these needs? It's not always just about the physical um, makeup of the individual person. What's happening in the environment? How are we understanding how to address that? And that is a huge health disparity when we talk about education. What does the environment look like? Have the pipes in your schools been changed in over 100 years? We have school systems that have buildings that are over 100 years old, right? So these are areas that we're looking at asbestos, right? Like I said, we're looking at mold. We're looking at, you know, what's going on with, with the, the buildings ventilation right so these are the things that we're looking at and again depending on where we are are these title one schools are we getting additional funding from the government are we are we looking at areas that are you know overly served right and that is a such thing <laughs> so these programs that we have this is what we have to do we have to start teaching people to understand what's going on knowing their rights how to use them to their benefits and their children's benefits and also coming together to bring everyone to be involved that can that can bring a positive outcome to these things. Oh, I love I love what you said. And you know what ties together the, the issues that you're talking about, whether it's in inequities and in educational opportunities, uh, racial inequality in healthcare systems, uh, different environmental exposures in different neighborhoods. The thing that ties it all together is what you said, Casey, which is advocacy helping our parents to harness their power and understand how to come together and build political power through collective action and advocacy. And I think that's the key for communities to be able to realize their own vision of what a healthy and equitable community looks like. Because at the end of the day, it's really about community self-determination. And so what Casey's speaking to in terms of the tools um, that she helps to provide to parents that to me is essential to helping a community realize its vision uh, and to have self-determination over uh, what happens in the community and the services that are provided in the community. That is such an important point to really sit with, right? Communal self-determination. How many of us get to write the critical future of the places where we live, work, and learn? The most important parts, right, where we love the places where we love, we can't even decide how we want to be in these spaces because of all these constraints, 
right? There's so many constraints. So communal self-determination, that is critical future, right? That is the future we are trying to get to. So, so Brian, as an equity scholar, can you talk to me about how you distinguish between policy change versus structural change versus systems change? And when we think about this idea of communal self-determination, how can community create change in these areas when they are so big and, and oftentimes unintelligible to us because they're, they're the, the water in the fishbowl? Yeah, that's right. Right. So like sometimes you can't even see them because they're everything we live and breathe. So what what are the differences between policy change, structural change and systems change and how communities begin to chip away at those areas? Sure. Yeah. Great question. So I think we are all working to try to influence policy because we know that policy helps to shape people's lives. But we know that policy can be positive or negative, particularly from the standpoint of racialized and marginalized communities. So. Policy change to me is a, is a broad term that could encompass good things and bad things, but typically it's pretty incremental. But we need policy change to get to systems change, changing systems so that they more equitably serve everybody. So one example of a systems problem that I see is segregated healthcare that persists to this day. And specifically, black people don't get access to the highest quality hospitals, healthcare services, uh, healthcare institutions, et cetera. That's something that has to change. Uh, and so that is, is something that you can change through policy, but it gets at uh, a systems change, which is that everybody should have access to the best of our healthcare systems, and those systems should be more equitably distributed. But then the, the, the biggest issue, of course, is really uh, about trying to understand um, how we get to, um, to uh, completely reimagining um, the systems that have been involved in uh, racial oppression over generations, over uh, hundreds of years in this country. So when we talk about um, move, uh, moving policy to change uh, uh, structures, that's important. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we want to reimagine how healthcare is delivered and to have it, again, focused on what the community determines that that healthcare should look like uh, in response to the community's needs. So. I think at the end of the day, we're working toward policy change, but recognizing that policy change is often pretty incremental. Um, to me, we also at the same time have to offer a vision uh, for what a reimagined healthcare system looks like that values all human beings equally. You know, Casey, I'm really thinking about your work and how hands-on, boots to the ground it is. Um, so I really want to I want to tease apart your recommendations then. Right. So what are your recommendations for from from parents who are struggling to navigate these systems, not because of them, right, because of the systems and the way they're designed to whole communities? What are your recommendations for creating these anti-racist health and education spaces, um, whether it's policy structures or systems? So. First and foremost, you can't be, you know, if, if, if you want to change the problem and you're not going to jump in, you can't complain. That's number one. Um, you know, you, you have to be a part of the solution. Um, and listen, I'll be the first one to admit I was always, you know, I was taught to vote. So I always went to vote. Right. I always did the right thing in that respect. But 
before I had a kid, I could care less. I'm, I'm, I'm being very honest, right? And, and because I went to school, I went to college, I graduated, I got the job, I was working in New York, and life was good, right? And then this kid came along, right? This other person um, that I was responsible for, and it completely changes you. Now I felt like my mother. Now I felt like my grandmother, and now I understood why they were out doing what they were doing in the community and being a part of an a, in an action and being a part of something that was going to change um, within our community, within our state, within our country. Um, and and that's when I started to say, oh, wait a minute, right? That light started to go off. And I'm not saying for everyone it's going to take to be a parent. Um, but again, like I said, I, I worked in the city, I worked in New York and, and everything was great. But when you look at really the reality of where we're living in, what can you do as an individual to be a part of that change? Um, what I would say to individuals that are working, whether it's for their their individual child or children within their community or their community, you know, you have to understand that there is going to be a lot of issues and sacrifices that you may need to make to make these things come, come to fruition. I ran for my board of education and won, right? One of being one of two African-American women in, in, on our board of education in my town within, you know, a few amount of years in a, in a town that's predominantly um, have a administration and teachers that don't look like our children. I was a part of, you know, going to the Hill and having these conversations with our congressmen. And some people may not have the opportunity to do so. But where can you fit in, right, to understand where you can be a part of that change? I was, you know, I've also been on um, our Civil Rights Commission. I'm one of the commissioners here in town. And again, this is not what I initially set out to do. But in order for you to make change, you have to be a part of where the changes are actually going to be made. So these are small steps that people that are on the boots, on the, on, you know, have their boots on the ground doing. They can start to be a part of that. Right. What's happening? What initiatives are happening that are supporting your children, that are affecting your children, that is affecting your community on a day to day basis? And how are you involved? And we see it so many times where, you know, the complaints are happening. Right. We hear the complaints, but the changes are not being affected when you're not doing anything about it. You have to be a part of that. And that doesn't mean you have to run for a board. It doesn't mean you have to be on the Civil Rights Commission. It doesn't mean that you have to go to the Hill and have your, your, you know these conversations with our congressmen. However, what it does mean, if you, ha you have to be one of those individuals that are actually supporting those initiatives, right? That are, that are writing the letters um, to make the changes. Because if the policy is not being gonna change, it's not going to change anything that's going to happen coming down coming down the ladder right your structure is absolutely not going to change it's just not and again going back to this idea of communal self-determination when we think of individual self-determination right so i love that you are not being prescriptive you're not saying everybody has to do a through z you're saying get in where you fit in exactly right figure out what are your talents what what do you bring to this role and then exploit those things for for the greater good and for for change versus trying to do what someone else is doing. So I love that, that notion. It's so amazing. Like, you know, when we think, when we think on the surface of healthcare, we automatically think 
you're sick. Someone being, you know, someone you're having a cold, you have to go. But it's not always about that, right? An unhealthy community is unbalanced. And that is going to bring in ailments to everyone that are th- that's there. That starts about stress levels, right? Which ultimately leads down into your your o- your overall health care, right? Depending if you're in a stressful environment within your community, within your job, within your school, you know, that's going to affect your overall health care. So, you know, you can't just look at it on the surface. It's definitely something that happens within your environment. Absolutely. I think this 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 is also the case when we think about mental health, right? So communal health and mental health, we don't think about them as symptoms that we can address versus symptoms that we cannot and we need medical intervention. And I think a lot of folks, especially for their mental health, there's so much stigma around going to get help. Um, Forget all the inaccessibility, just the idea of going itself is, oh, I'm not I'm not quote unquote crazy. I'm not this. I'm not that. And, And I think that too many of us ignore the symptoms that we can treat at home, right? So the symptoms related to stress and, and you know, exploitation on the job, we call it burnout, but it's not as exploitation. Um, you know, the, the symptoms around anxiety and depression, understanding when it's time to step back and take a break, right? So I love what you said, you know, communities that are unhealthy are unbalanced. We can, we can treat some of those symptoms, Absolutely can. Right. Not everything requires medical intervention, but as long as we can't even have that conversation because we're too afraid of the stigmas attached to being diagnosed or labeled, you know, what kind of rut do we find ourselves in? What kind of cycle um, that, that doesn't include healing justice do we find ourselves in? So now we get to the big money question. Right. So this work is not only is it taxing on the people like you, Casey and Brian, who are doing this work. Uh, not only is it taxing on the communities who are being re-traumatized as they are fighting existing traumas over and over again, um, but it's, it's taxing on everyone. And so what does it look like to resource this work so it's not the same, you know, folks showing up, so it's not the same communities being overburdened, you know, these vulnerable communities who everybody wants to use as their research subjects without offering care and concern to them. Um, how do we resource this work? How do funders support this work, right? So thinking back on all of your experiences, who's funded your work, who supported, who's evaluated it, how do we do that differently in the critical future so that we can resource this work to avoid that burnout um, and overstressing our vulnerable populations? Such a great question, Amber. I don't know what the dollar figure is, but I know that as a general principle, we should be explicit about talking about what it is that's needed. You know, folk talk a lot about equity, particularly in the health equity space. And equity means giving people uh, resources according to need so that they can achieve their best health status. Well, that's wonderful and laudable. I'm increasingly thinking about the fact that we need to go beyond giving people what they need, but we need to give people what they are owed in the form of repair. So repair suggests that we need much more resources than an equitable system would provide. An equitable, equitable system, healthcare system, for example, ensures that everybody gets treatment according to need, but a reparative system would say, let's go back and restore what was lost, what was harmed, what was damaged. Let's repair the damage, including historical trauma from centuries of racism and oppression. So again, I don't know what that dollar figure looks like, but I think when we talk about 
what resources are needed, we need to be explicit about what are our value systems and assumptions behind that question. And I think increasingly we need to be asking the question, what resources are needed to repair the damage uh, literally of centuries, generations of racial oppression, because we have a growing body of science and evidence that shows that racism and discrimination has, uh, has had biological consequences for people who are the victims of that form of oppression in the form of epigenetic changes, in the form of biologic and physiological changes that are, are entirely the result of oppression and, and discrimination. So thought about in that context, the dollar figure becomes something different and, and how we think about um, what is justice in this context, uh, it would be just for um, in the U.S. context for this society to allocate the resources necessary to repair generations, centuries of damage to people of color in particular and people of African descent in particular. I think this is where we come together, right? So Brian, as the researcher, myself as a person that's actually out there, right? So this is where we, we really come together. And, and it's great because in this work, you can see where, like your question was, you know, how do we not replicate this? And I see, I, I've seen the replication happen over and over and over where I see the same communities, the same partners, the same parents, the same individuals that we're using over and over and over to do the same work. So are we really getting the right information, right? Are we really capturing the information that we need to get the, the correct outcome. And, and I don't think that we are um, in, in a sense. And so that's why it's important when you're working with researchers that you make it understood that yes, we have done this in this area or in, in this population, but we need to move on. And how do we support the information, the data that we use prior to move back and be even better with the next steps that we do? Um, I am good trouble. I am a person that goes and do, and then I ask for permission later. Um, I, you know, so I, I'm one of those people. So I, I think that we need to really, really start to get out there and, and just do the work, right? Um, and so that we can then show the funders that we the, it's warranted. Right. That that it's warranted. So now we're not going to the funders. The funders are actually now coming to us. You understand where I'm coming from? So that we can show that the need is so great that we're going out and we're doing this work and we, we, we're showing you without question. Right. Be, prior to you even coming to say, listen, this is what we have. No, the, I, we understand what, what you have, but we can now show you what we need. And there are so many opportunities for researchers, um, you know, to that are just like you said, like, you know, entering this work and, and, and trying to understand where the greatest need is. But we can't continue to duplicate because we're not getting accurate information. And I'm and I tell you, the, the programs that I have been able to be a part of, um, that was one of the priorities. Because, right, funding sometimes lasts one, two, three years, four years. But it's a priority that we don't go back and mimic what we did the prior year before. Because if that, that's not constituting what we're actually looking for. So we're really just kind of chasing our tails. 
Absolutely. I think, I think something so important that you touched on this idea of doing the work right and well and asking forgiveness later. You know, I think about you touched on so many points that created the conditions for that to exist, right? So many funders don't understand the importance of the work, though they want to support it. And I think that they have really great intent. Um, I think that the, their heart is there, but how, you know, I'm, I'm constantly struggling with how to do this work in ways that resonates with community and with funders, because those things oftentimes feel way off alignment. Um, yeah. <laughs> and in reality, the easy answer is listen to community. That's right. That's, I mean, that's the easy answer. That's the easy answer. It really is. And, and you know, you have so many different restraints. And, and if, you're, if you're doing the work first and do it right, you make your own rules. Hello. And, and it's, not, it's not Casey's rules, right? No. No. It's the rules of all the people who come with you on this journey. The people who were who were alive doing this work when you were a, a, a little tiny cell Hello. in your mama's body, <laughs> you know, all the way to now. It's it's the, the shoulders of the giants that we walk on. And so I'm I'm it's so interesting to hear community folks saying this thing over and over again. Listen to us. Listen. We are the experts of our experience. Listen to us. And then our counterparts who act as the gatekeepers because they determine which projects are worthy of being funded saying, but I don't want to. I have my own idea. (laughs) I I don't want to. And so I think I think this takes us to the conversation about the consortium and why it's so important. Right. Like, how are we helping Robert Wood Johnson Foundation reimagine? I love that word, Brian. How are we reimagining? how we fund this work so that we can stop creating barriers to do the work. Yeah, that's right, Amber. And so the consortium is trying to advise the Robert Johnson Foundation and to uh, blaze some paths that we haven't seen other foundations take to explicitly focus on structural racism and to tackle structural racism in our healthcare systems. Uh, You know, structural and institutional forms of racism are the least visible forms of racism. When, when people, the average person thinks racism, they're thinking about some bad actor, some person with bad intent, treating a person of color badly. And that happens uh, too often. But the, it's the less visible, uh, the structural and institutional manifestations of racism that we're trying to help the foundation to lift up and to, uh, and to address. And so um, it's hard work. It's, it's definitely something that I imagine um, the folks at the foundation are go into with some trepidation because there are risks, right? Uh, as with anything, but we have to, to blaze new paths. And so um, I'm so delighted and honored to be a part of the consortium and to, uh, to work with such great colleagues to be thinking about what's, where, should we, where should we be pointing our, our feet and our eyes? <laughs> Where's the next direction we need to be going in and it's not to replicate the same old thing. Sure. So, Casey, tell us. Tell us where we're going. You know, this is it's, it's a very dynamic group, right? And I think what what's happening, what should be happening, and, and one of the most, out of any other program that I've ever been involved in, any other board that I've ever sat on or researched, um, like I said before, the researchers and the catalysts were working together, right? Your researchers are not behind a curtain. Right. Collecting data and then looking it over and then coming to their own, um, you know, theory of what you actually mean. There's a conversation that's happening. There's a true 
And when I mean true, and I'm sure, Amber, you've seen this, you see the word collaboration, but it's not happening. There's just people that are on the list, right? There's a true collaboration and that's, that's actually happening. There's a, there's a community, there's a dialect, there's a conversation. There is, no, you said, but this is what I really meant, right? All of these things are coming into play. The tone, the conversation, what we really mean, right? What this means if you are a researcher that is not African-American and if you're African-American, you can now say, no, 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 no. This is what our culture sees. This is what we really actually mean, not this, right? So this is what has to start happening. No one is above anyone. With this work, we're we're all on the same playing field. Whether you are a researcher, a parent, a scholar, a doctor, it doesn't matter. We are working collectively to really see true outcomes and see the difference with this type of work than you that, that than you actually have seen in the past. So that's what I think we really need to start doing. We really need to have everyone's voice heard, be on the same playing field, and understand that there is a value. There's a value in this kind of work. And if we continue to trend on that way, it can come, it, it can come become what they say viral, right? <laughs> right? It can become viral. So the, we have two questions left, right? So one of them is literally about the advice you have people entering this work. And I feel like, Casey, you literally just pushed that out there, right? Like, <laughs> elaborate, equalize the playing field so that we, we eliminate barriers so that everybody really does feel. When we say included, we don't mean a seat at the table. We mean that your voice is valued and it matters, right? So we get closer and closer to that communal self-determination. Um, and so, the, so Brian, I'll open the floor up to you if you also have some advice. But then I want you both to think a bit about this last question. What do you hope the legacy of your work will be? Right. Once you are moved on from this flame, what do you wish to have happened in this critical future? Oh, that's such a great question, Amber. So for me, um, I want. By the time that my working days are done for my children and their grandchildren to say, Dad, you mean people were treated poorly because of their skin color? Dad, you mean that there were systematic barriers to opportunity? Did that really happen back in the day? (laughs) And so now, of course, the likelihood of that world being created um, is, is, is slim, but we have to hold on to that hope, even despite the odds. So for me, it's a world that is equitable and just to where my grandchildren will say, I can't believe it was any different. Um, they will, of course, know their history. So they'll know uh, that um, despite the racist foundations of our healthcare systems, despite the racist foundations of the country, we have overcome it. And that's how I hope um, that this work will be remembered. You know, what Brian touched on is something that we've been touching on for generations. And I think he's absolutely right. Right. So those are the questions that I'm sure my mother asked her mother, which was my grandmother. Right. Which is actually the same question that my 10 year old, which is driving me crazy, is asking me. Right. Right. So so my son now. So there becomes a period when our children begin to see color. Right. Because at one point, at some point, you notice that your friends are your friends, right? And then there's there's this pivotal moment in childhood where children start to see color. And my son is very much like me. Um, is he black? Is he white, mom? What what is it? You know, but what does that mean? And where does that come from? And why are we even asking that question? 
I think what my legacy that I would want to see um, or with the or, or with those that I'm working with is that that doesn't like he said that doesn't even need to be a question. So the teachings, the teachings, right from from very young childhood, right? What's happening in our again community? What's happening in the home? What are we teaching so that when we start to build, it it, the, it it's not even a thought. We have to begin to ask the hard questions so much more earlier than we're doing. Because then, as we are now, we're beginning to play catch up. We're starting to play catch up on something that we could have caught well beforehand. So that when we start to do this work and we start to do this research and we start to understand why people are in poverty states and we start to understand why underserved communities are mostly minorities, those questions can somewhat be able to be answered if we start so much earlier with, the ch- with what we're teaching our children. And again, it all comes out to the same to the same situation that we were talking about earlier. Healthier communities, healthier communities or unhealthy communities, I should say, are unbalanced communities. We have to get the balance a little bit sooner than we are. now. Casey and Brian, I want to thank you so much. I feel so full. I am so appreciative of the work that you are doing. I am thankful for how you are extending your energy and yourselves. Um, Cause we live in a country where you don't have to do that. You just don't, you can, you can create your mobility and close your eyes and pretend like none of it exists and choose not to see it, but you've chosen not just to see it, but you've chosen to do something about it. So thank you, Casey. And thank you, Brian. Thank you for joining us on this episode of critical futures. I welcome you both to come back anytime and let's keep talking about your work and let's keep helping folks imagine their role within it. Thank you for listening to the Critical Features podcast. If you're feeling inspired and looking for more resources, please check out www.ihje.org backslash podcast for show notes and links to resources and to subscribe. Thanks for tuning in.